We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids. I am Julia Plugge with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher with the Kansas Department of Wildlife Parks. Follow us on our outdoor adventures. Hey all, and welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. Happy spring! On the last episode, we chatted about all the things we're up to, because as we all know, spring is a busy time of year. But this episode, I want to know, Rachel, what are you doing this spring and how are you setting aside some time for self-care to recover from all that busy activity? So I think our listeners know um, my husband and I bought some land just north of town. So we're actually in the process of moving a a granary so like a 1900s granary that has held nothing but wheat and hay in it for the last hundred years we're going to actually make that into a little cabin so we're working on pouring foundations and all that and we got all our mulching in so our tulips and crocuses and daffodils now have like a nice bed so we're playing in the dirt hopefully going to get out for spring turkey uh, I was starting to hear them gobble. I saw vultures, so I know that spring's on its way. Uh, but yeah, just just really out, turning off the phone, getting away from the computer, and playing um, and doing some hard work. What are you up to, Tana? Absolutely the same thing. My poor fiance, I like had a panic attack the other day and was just like, I need to play in the dirt. It has to happen today. We got to get going. So we moved some, uh, I don't, I don't know what they are. Honestly, they could be tulips. They could be daffodils. They're little green shoots and they're coming up. And so we moved them around and planted some bushes in front of the house, which felt great to get my hands in the dirt again. I got really excited because I planted some native Kansas wildflowers, but, uh, my lovely fiance also really likes to feed and take pictures of the birds. And so all these little green shoots I saw coming coming up that I got excited and thought were wildflowers were um, sunflower seeds from the birds he was feeding. So <laughs> that was a little, a little um, interesting, but like you, Rachel, I'm also out looking for turkeys, hoping to get out during the archery season this year and uh, hunt some public land and just see where we go from there. Typically with turkeys, they teach me that I'm a big giant idiot and don't know what I'm doing in the outdoors for a bird of very small brains. They are indeed quite smart. So that's what I'm up to. Oh man, I'm just reminded of of our spring turkey hunts of of earlier years when I was, you know, 90 months pregnant and Megan and I were trying to be quiet. I just, every time I think about turkeys, I laugh because I'm like, gosh, they are so much smarter than I sometimes. So <laughs> it just makes me laugh. Um, but today we're joined by a good friend of hunting and shooting sports, our dear friend, Tanaya Bathke. Tanaya, will you take a moment, introduce yourself, give a little bit of a background for our listeners? Absolutely. Well, first of all, good morning. And I can't explain to you or express how much I, uh, I, I feel what you're talking about, about being 90 months pregnant and out in the field. Um, <laughs> being outside isn't an option for me. It's part of my mental health and well-being. And so, you know, I was like 8,000 pounds and giant waddling, you know, down the trail, <laughs> trying to scout for deer. And uh, yeah, that's that's a fun time of year for sure. 
But uh, my name is Tanaya Bethke. I'm the director of operations for the Council to Advance Hunting and Shooting Sports. I've got a degree in conservation biology and captive wildlife. And so I've always been a nature nut, you know, grew up with my family camping and being outside, grew up in the middle of a cornfield in southern Minnesota and traveled all over the place. I came up through environmental education and field biology. So I would spend my off seasons chasing birds and, and small mammals in the field doing biology work. And then um, I would alternate that with getting into the classroom or into informal environmental education opportunities. And that led me to being a high school biology teacher in Dallas for a few years. And um, while I was there, my husband and I started looking for opportunities to move back to the Midwest and be a little closer to aging family. And um, I wanted to get back to my roots with conservation. And so while I absolutely loved being a teacher, it was definitely time for us to to, to make a move. And so this position opened up with South Dakota Game Fish and Parks. Um, there are three coordinator position came up and um, with my experience and expertise with conservation and with education, it was the perfect fit. So I came up to South Dakota and started working, overseeing all of the education programs for the wildlife division fell in love with the pier area. There's so much wildlife. There's so many open spaces and wild spaces to get to just like five minutes down the road. Um, my family and I, we live just like a quarter mile off the Missouri river and um, we've got army Corps land right behind our place. So um, when we moved here, we bought a house, we got pregnant. We have two beautiful daughters. Theo is three years old and Luca is eight months old and they've got lots of wild space to run around in. So that's kind of that's where we're at right now. My husband Eric works for the state parks here in town, and we're just happy outdoor family. That sounds beautiful, and I love seeing your pictures online of you taking your family into the great outdoors. You guys have just such a a beautiful life, and we're glad that you could join us and share that with us today. Um, I'm curious, listening to you talk about your career path, Tanaya, it seems like a lot of the guests we have on when we ask them, you know, in your current role, director of operations for the Council to Advance Hunting and Shooting Sports, was that ever in game for you, like what you envisioned for yourself, or has this been a pretty sinuous path? <laughs> That's a great question. So I never, ever in a million years dreamed about working for a national nonprofit that is focused specifically on engagement in hunting and shooting sports. And even like, so I got headhunted when I, by the council, when I was like seven and a half months pregnant. So once again, like, let's just do all things at once. Why not? Um, <laughs> and so I was still working with Game Fish and Parks, loving my job and the team with Game Fish and Parks here in South Dakota, an excellent, amazing group of people. Um, when the council reached out and they were like, Hey, we really could use, you know, your, your skill set on our team. And started working with them. But even for the first six months working with them, it took some time to really find where my passion and my experience and expertise overlaps with where the council really needed my my work and my effort. You know, I have not spent a lot of my time thinking about Second Amendment rights in my life. I've not spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, advancing shooting sports from a national perspective. And so having that time to really reflect in the last eight months has been really powerful um, and realizing that like my passion for diversity and inclusion and my passion for making sure that outdoor activities, regardless of what they are, are open and safe for all people to engage in is really, really important. And that's one of the things that I bring to this new position and I'm excited about. Well, you bring a lot of power and enthusiasm wherever you go from the state perspective. I'm very, very thankful that you are operating in this nationwide capacity now and that we get to benefit even more from all your genius. Well, thanks. Uh, man, <laughs> I'm going to start my day with you all more often. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's crazy because like I grew up as the only like ethnically ambiguous chick with an Afro for like 300 miles in Southern Minnesota. And so working in this space now is still kind of like, 
this feeling of, I, I feel like I've spent my entire life being in spaces that I are like, not, I don't look like anybody else there. And, and I definitely think differently than a lot of folks in this space. So it's just been a really incredible experience seeing some of the other allies and champions in this workspace and getting to work with y'all has been like, you all have been mentors to me throughout this entire process as well. Um, so it's been a really powerful experience. I just want to reiterate, that is such an amazing statement that you just you just said that I, I was like, I have to remember, I have to remember. And sorry, I forgot. But the fact that like ethnically diverse with an Afro, like it's such a fun statement. And um, and your smile that our listeners can't see just kind of invigorates all of us this morning. So there's so many different directions in this conversation that we could go, but we really wanted to chat this morning about things you already mentioned, but diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, it, it gets thrown around so often as DEI. It's such a buzzword kind of right now c- across the span of of society. But I really want to hone in on that and, and kind of talk a little bit about um, the Small Game Diversity Toolkit. Uh, it's, it's a project that Tana, Julia, and I are, are super passionate and excited about but so important for just fish and wildlife agencies in general. So I'm going to pitch it to you because I really want to know a little bit more about the project, kind of the goals and, and how it got started. You got it. It's an interesting concept, kind of what you were talking about with how important DEI is now. But, you know, the archery movement has recognized for forever that engaging broader audiences is essential and crucial to the future of conservation and that all people deserve equal access to outdoor spaces and activities. And so that's cornerstone, a cornerstone concept within R3. It's a cornerstone concept within relevancy. It's a cornerstone concept within all conservation. And so DEI certainly can be a buzzword or has been like you've talked about in the last couple of years, it's, you know, been at the forefront of a lot of people's minds, but man, it is, you know, a core value in what we do. So I was working with South Dakota Game Fish and Parks, and we were doing this really fun marketing campaign um, to reach out to broader audiences with small game hunting specifically. And I was engaging within the Mafwa region at the same time. Um, So the Midwest folks, I was hanging out with you guys and we were all um, working on the R3 community, just kind of trying to figure out what we wanted to do to apply for this funding opportunity, this multi-state conservation grant money that was available to us to do R3 projects. And I was working on this marketing effort within South Dakota, looking for pictures of women hunting pheasants. And it sounds super fundamental. Like, of course, there's tons of pictures of women hunting pheasants. Why wouldn't there be? There's tons of women who hunt. Why wouldn't there be pictures of them? I could not find them. There were none except for like really crappy selfies of me on my cell phone. And so that was one of the things that lit a fire under my butt because I thought if there's not pictures of women, there sure as hell aren't going to be pictures out there of people of of various backgrounds and, and people who have varying disabilities or ability levels and people that represent the LGBTQ plus community. And so I kind of came in to the R3 committee, the Mafal R3 committee with this idea of we need representation. If we really truly want to be about these activities being open to all people, then where the hell is the representation? And at that same time, Keith Warnke has had kind of moved up in, in his uh, leadership in Wisconsin and had left a space available for someone within the Mafwa community, within the Mafwa R3 committee to move into a leadership role and take on this multi-state conservation grant project. And so very conveniently, um, I was available and very honored that uh, I was asked to take the lead on that project. So that's kind of how it came to be. 
So I took that work from South Dakota, expanded it into a multi-state conservation grant project because our three practitioners across the region were expressing very similar concerns. And um, that's kind of that's kind of where it came from. Tanaya, talk to us a little bit, too, about who else is involved in this project now that it's at the multi-state level. So we were super fortunate, like found from a foundational level, the R3 committee within MAFWA has been an incredible partner throughout that entire entire process. But in addition to that, we've been able to partner with organizations like DJ Case and Associates, Good Marketing, uh, National Wild Turkey Federation. Uh, we've had backcountry hunters and anglers represented and pheasants forever and quail forever. And it's just been such an excellent partnership of people showing passion for representation and outdoor activities. Yeah, it's great to see all those awesome groups involved, you know, when you're creating a toolkit that's meant to get at diversity and you don't include diverse partners, like that could be seen as a failing right there. So I love that you all took that into consideration. Mm -hmm. And I like what you just touched on. Um, One thing that was really important with this project was that we didn't have a bunch of folks that didn't belong to the audiences we were trying to reach coming up with solutions, right? Like the last thing you want is a bunch of people without any representation prescribing what they think is the right thing to the groups that they're trying to reach. So one really important part of this project that I want to highlight is the work that DJ Case did internally to facilitate focus groups with women, African-Americans, and Hispanic populations, which were the target audiences for this project, and specifically not only provide a, a facilitator that matched the gender and ethnicity of those target audiences, but have really meaningful discussions with them about what their perceived barriers are and the kinds of products they would like to see. Because again, like there's an old phrase that's nothing about us without us. And I think that that is a fundamental concept that all of us should be embracing as we move forward into this work. Like we need to be talking to the people that we want to serve and, and partnering with them and engaging with them in a meaningful way. For our listeners to kind of give a little bit of background on this, MAFWA that Tanaya keeps talking about is the Midwest Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. So across the nation, we have a couple different regional groups within the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. And so all 50 states belong to at least one, and they're a voting member of at least one. There are a couple fringe states like Nebraska and Iowa and in Kansas that actually sit on the border of multiple regions. So we kind of attend um, multiple association meetings. So um, we have Neafwa up in the Northeast. We have Siafwa down in the Southeast. We have Wafwa um, out in the Western and then Mafwa here in the Midwest. So um, just a little bit of background on that. And then, and then the funding source that Tanaya was talking about is the multi-state conservation grant. So um, many of our listeners understand the Pittman Robinson Act and and kind of how we got money. You've heard me talk on my soapbox about the importance of that act, along with like Dingle Johnson for Sportfish and the Lacey Act and all of these important acts that were happened by visionaries before us. Um, But here recently, we actually modernized um, some of that funding and allows us to to do different things with that money. And so one of it was to open up some pots of money for specifically for um, kind of broadening into the R3 world. So that recruitment, retention, reactivation of hunters and shooting sports participants and kind of growing that pocket. So uh, just a little bit of background as to how we got into this specific group of, of folks working on this project and then how it was funded. And, 
And so tonight in your in your talk, you kind of mentioned that you were talking about bringing in underrepresented folks, but you you talk specifically that you wanted to focus on small game hunting. Why? And what are you classifying as small game hunting? Why are we focusing on this? And 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 what were some of the discussion points around that focus? That's a really great question. Um, and thank you so much for explaining those pieces. I get kind of lost in the jargon sometimes. So that was really helpful for me too. So the focus on small game hunting in South Dakota specifically, but across the Midwest, like small game is an exceptionally large opportunity for anything from dove hunting to pheasant to up, any other upland game birds, squirrels, rabbits. These are all underutilized resources and they have oftentimes unlimited licensing opportunities. And so when it comes to R3 or recruitment, retention and reactivation, there are so many spaces to fill in that specific opportunity where we can really create some positive momentum and change and that we don't have to worry about a lack of opportunity there. You know, when you start talking about big game like deer, oftentimes there's already all of those licenses are being sold. You know, there's not as much opportunity available there. And so we really wanted to focus in the areas where we could create the most change and it's easily accessible, you know, and it's less intimidating often starting with some small game opportunities for folks that are just getting into the activities. So those are some of the things we started thinking about. Yeah. And that approachability really shows up too in like the gear and equipment, um, people being able to go out and hunt pheasants, for example, in a pair of jeans, like that is such a big deal, especially, I mean, to me, even as just a, a new hunter that can be seen as such a barrier. And so I loved all those accessibility components that were taken into account, but also there are a lot of great pictures too, where people are decked out in like full Sitka gear. And that's so important because in the few instances where we do see people of color represented in the outdoors, sometimes they're represented as being new and at the introductory level. And, you know, that's great. And we want to appeal to that audience, but we also want to acknowledge and appeal to the fact that there are plenty of people of color that are expert hunters out there. And so this is not just like us reaching out to those that are just now getting into the field. This is us finally recognizing those folks that have had a place in this world for so long and uh, saying, Hey, we see you here. You are. We want to tell your story as well. You're absolutely 100% right. And I think that's, critical that the representation that we see is not truly representative of the population that is engaged and it's time that we catch up. Absolutely. So Tanaya, you mentioned a couple of key groups being involved and one of those was DJ Case, which helped formulate these focus groups and listening sessions. And then you also mentioned that you worked with a marketing firm as well. Can you talk us a little bit through the role that each of those groups play and how some of these different photo shoots were organized and what factors were being taken into account? Absolutely. So kind of in the beginning, we had to file for an extension. COVID was a complicating factor in a lot of the scheduling for all of this. And so the, the timeline that ended up working out was we were able to hold these really fantastic focus groups using DJ Case's expertise. And they hosted, again, focus groups specifically with Hispanic, African-American and female populations. Now, it was hard for us to narrow down which target markets we wanted to work with and which audiences we wanted to really focus on with this toolkit because there are so many populations that deserve representation that are underrepresented that need that engagement. But this tool couldn't be all things to all people. So we had to start somewhere. DJ Case and Associates held these really amazing focus groups. And the results of those focus groups helped to tell us what kinds of photo assets and resources we should create as a result of our photo shoots. And then we were able to work very closely with 
other states across the Midwest region who had some resources and relationships that they were able to leverage to bring people together for photo shoots. And that was really challenging for a lot of our states, for me included in South Dakota, there aren't established relationships with many of the populations that we're trying to serve. That's why they're underrepresented, right? Maybe they've been historically excluded from these activities, or maybe our state hasn't done a really great job of forming relationships with them. So finding the states that do have established relationships so that we could amplify those efforts was a really important component. And so we've scheduled photo shoots in those states, specifically Nebraska and Kentucky. And then there was an additional follow-up photo shoot in in Michigan and um, brought in some really amazing role models, people who are extraordinary experts in these fields and who are, you know, active outdoor enthusiasts and and took some photos of them engaging in small game hunting activities. Uh, From there, we made this toolkit. We pulled together a lessons learned document because you can do this work wrong and alienate people. And we don't want to do that. We wanted to share this information broadly about how to do this work well and how to honor, you know, our relationships with people. We created a photo toolkit and an implementation guide um, and the final report from the focus groups. And now that toolkit and all those resources are available to anybody that does our work and the general public, if you want to go and get it on the National R3 Clearinghouse. Tonight, I want to highlight something you said in that um, you were capturing photo content of people, I think you said engaging in small game hunting activities. And there's a big difference there because, you know, I know, Um, a lot of the times we have seen imagery where it's clear someone was hired that maybe looked or portrayed a certain aesthetic. They were posed with a dead pheasant and stood out in the field. And what I thought was really unique about, um, the toolkit that you all put together is you put some serious consideration into actually showcasing these people genuinely participating. So it wasn't all just posed photos. It was getting people out in the field, getting them access to these opportunities, having a great time, and then having this beautiful photo library that came of that event. And I think that was really a powerful decision on your part. Thank you. Um, I wish there had been actually more supported hunts and supported opportunities. And this relates back to what this toolkit is and what it isn't. So, you know, We as states and as partners should be capturing authentic opportunities as much as we possibly can, right? Like you have programs, you get people to the programs, you document the program, you use those resources to continue to advertise future opportunities, right? That's an authentic way to do this. Some of these opportunities were like that and others were not. We did not necessarily have supported hunts to be able to take photos of. Like I said, this is, this project is not the end, And it's only the beginning. This can't be a box that we all check. Like, oh, I used a bunch of diverse pictures. Ta-da, we win, right? Because if you do use these pictures, but you're not doing the -the on-the-ground work of diversifying your instructor base or reaching out to broader audiences and making meaningful relationships with them and asking them what they need and then providing the resources to meet them where they are, then using these pictures is just false advertising, right? Absolutely. And thanks for clarifying that, Tanaya. I think that's such an important thing too. And you, like you said, we will do this work wrong and we will make some mistakes along the way. And this toolkit is obviously to help us um, get through that and avoid that. But I hope that, you know, if anyone is listening that is considering approaching DE&I in their workplace, in their community organizations, et cetera, that you aren't fearful to approach this work because you're scared of making a mistake. 
we will make mistakes and we will bungle things up. But, you know, Tanaya has spoken to the true transparency of this project and what it is that we're trying to accomplish, everything that we are trying to learn from this. And I think that can really go a long way. So I appreciate your transparency there, Tanaya, and letting us all know how that came to be. You got it. And I think, you know, we all make mistakes, right? But like, let me tell you, when I know someone and I understand their heart and I have context of who they are, when they screw up, I have so much forgiveness in my heart for them because I know where they're coming from. Right. And that is all about the true nature of building relationships with people. And so if we're going to do this work, it has to be about building relationships with people. That's it. Period. Like, I don't care if you take one anything away from this entire conversation. It's like damn it, go make some friends, like just make some friends. And, and those relationships are going to get us so much farther than trying to create like a technical list of check boxes for what DEI is. This conversation really reminds me of a great conversation we had a few weeks ago with uh, Janelle and, and just her experience getting into archery and ultimately archery hunting and, and coming from a non-traditional Nebraska background. There's so many echo sentiments. So if, if our listeners haven't listened to that great conversation, I do encourage them to go back a couple of weeks and, and listen to that discussion um because there's a lot of just honesty and and openness in that conversation too as as you kind of reflect it sounds like we're kind of at you know the end of the first session stage of this project and kind of moving into the second uh as you reflect like what was maybe the biggest challenge or the the biggest major moment that sticks out in your in your brain um not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing just what what are you most proud of learning or discovering or what sticks out in your brain that's a really good question. So we had a lot as a team, like we pulled together at the end of phase one of this project. And as you alluded to, there is a phase two I'd love to share about too. But uh, as we pulled together at the end of phase one, we all got together and we said, God, we learned so much as a result of this project. We need to reflect on that and document it. And some of the things that came out of that were simple things like when you're meeting with new people in the middle of nowhere, maybe you need to give them an opportunity to meet you face to face in a well-lit public space first before you say, hey, come meet a bunch of people you don't know with guns in the middle of a cornfield. Or maybe just something simple like, you know, and this is best practices no matter who you're engaging with, like a virtual video call. So there's a familiar face and a friendly face that they're going to see when they get there. Huge, right? Pay your talent. They're giving you your t- their time and energy and resources. Like maybe you should help compensate them for that simple takeaways like that, that were just like above our heads for whatever stupid reason before we started this project that we definitely learned as a result of it. Um, In addition to that, it was just abundantly clear how few meaningful relationships there were with various audiences on the landscape at all. And I think, you know, that just really shine like just a really bright spotlight on where the work needs to happen and what relationships need to be built and what kind of friends need to be made to help fill in these gaps in our community of, you know, again, like Tana pointed out earlier, it's not that these people don't exist. It's not that they're not interested. You know, it's just that they are not, we have not bridged the gap. You know, we have not built the relationships necessary to just be part of one comprehensive, amazing conservation community. And we can do that. So those are some of my major takeaways from this project. And then I think there's another component to this that phase two kind of hints at, and maybe we can get into that next, but it's also about evaluation. What's working and then what's not. 
and being very upfront and transparent about what's not working and adjusting. Yeah, Tanaya, and if you would, before we move on to phase two, which I'm really excited that there is a phase two, how do you envision the toolkit at this stage being used? So who has access to it? How do you see it being applied in the real world? Awesome. Thanks for asking that. So because it's it was paid for by, you know, by Pittman-Robertson funds, this resource is available to anybody that wants it. And it's housed on the National R3 Clearinghouse. You can go get it. You can play with it, do whatever you want with it. And I envision, again, this as the first step. So if you're like me and you were working as an R3 practitioner, you know, you were working on holding programs or reaching out to audiences and wanting to represent them at the larger level, the state level, you know, feel free to use this as your first step, right? You may lack some of those foundational resources, but this is just a small upfront investment, right? Use this at the very beginning of an initiative, feel free, but you better be adding to these resources, right? When you start pulling together your audiences and building relationships, my imagination is that you take these resources and you build upon them with the relationships that you're going to build. That's kind of my dream for this. If you want to use them for marketing campaigns, if you want to use them for advertising to different audiences for educational opportunities that you're hosting, if you want to embed them in your licensing system so that people see themselves represented across your department, you know, those are really great ways to use them. And I I think you bring a great point up about the R3 practitioner. I think sometimes we all get a little stuck with titles that because your job title doesn't say I'm the R3 coordinator, I'm on the R3 team, that doesn't mean you don't have access or can't use these resources, right? Like if I am a program or event coordinator and I'm hosting something, these resources are for you. I'm a park manager, park ranger, conservation officer, and I'm doing something in my community and I'm trying to attract people to come. I'm a wildlife biologist. I'm a National Wild Turkey Federation member. I'm a Pheasants Forever Backcountry Hunters Anglers. Like use whatever thing that noun you need before person and use these. Like we're trying to grow this bigger pool of people. We know these people are out there to, to your point. And just because your job title doesn't say R3 coordinator, doesn't mean they're not for you. Uh, this toolkit is a is a living, breathing document. Use it to learn. Um, I, I've taken just little tidbits out and said, oh, we could use this when I'm talking to women. We could do this when I'm really talking to just recent hunter education grads, right? Like, so like whatever your focus is at the end of the day, this toolkit, there, there's pieces that you can learn, even if you don't use the imagery, just, just how to communicate in a little bit more of a welcoming and open arms kind of discussion. So you brought up a great point. I just wanted to kind of kind of reiterate to our listeners. Uh, thank you so much for sharing those details. And you're absolutely right. If you're a state or industry or NGO and you have a need for, you know, more diverse resources, use them, please. I love that. Awesome. And I love that the whole community, the outdoor community, and even beyond can benefit from this resource. And you all have kept that top, in mo- top of mind. It's been clear. Tonight, 
you've teased us just a few times now. So tell us, <laughs> what is phase two of this project? What are the next steps? Oh, I'm so excited. So we were awarded a second round, the, the MAFWA, again, the Midwest Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Their R3 committee, again, was awarded a multi-state conservation grant, so Pittman-Robertson funds, to evaluate the implementation of this toolkit. So we know we made a great thing, but now we need to see if it's effective. And we have an opportunity to do that. And I'm so excited and so honored to have that opportunity. So we are working and the Council to Advance Hunting and the Shooting Sports is partnering with the, the Midwest R3 Committee to implement this toolkit with five different states within the Midwest region. And so they will be creating campaigns using these assets and then measuring the impact of those campaigns on the desired audiences to reach and just making sure that they're putting it to work. So I'm so excited to see how that works. We're very fortunate again to have good marketing on our team to help us with setting some of those goals and with DJ Case and Associates on our team again to help compile the report once all of the results have come in. And uh, so stay tuned. We'll share with you what we learn. And again, I'm sure there's going to be tons of things that are like, yeah, don't ever, ever do that again. Or yes, this is, this is one meaningful component to building these relationships. Please replicate this and amplify it. So stay tuned. <laughs> I, I was doing an imaginary, imaginary drum roll for you before the <laughs> announcement. So it's exciting. You've kind of talked about this a little bit. So we're talking specifically about the small game diversity toolkit, and it's just one little piece of this way bigger discussion. So if you will, we chat with us a little bit how this little project with such big implications um, kind of fits within concepts that we've talked about of our three or relevancy um, within outdoor world. This is one that I struggle with as an R3 practitioner, right? I, I think there is a massive misconception that I have really struggled with between different kinds of practitioners. You have some states that really lean in on relevancy, for example, and are, are talking about all outdoor recreation. And, and then R3 is another major focus across all states. And then you also have this DEI focus. And you have some people that view those as very separate things that should be measured separately. You have different teams that are working on these initiatives away from one another. And from the very bottom of my heart, I'm a bridge builder and someone who very actively always tries to find, find common ground between people. And I, I firmly believe that we get farther while we're together. And so I view toolkits like this as one opportunity for us to acknowledge the common ground between DEI, relevancy, and R3, and that we are all within this conservation community working to be open and engaging and provide safe spaces and welcoming spaces to all people. And that starts with representation and relationship building for all of us. And I think that that is a really, truly important core component for us all to lean in on and work together with, regardless of whatever differences there may be between our workflow or what we're specifically focused on. We are the conservation community and we have an opportunity to work together to get this done. So, you know, toolkits, yeah, that's one part of it. But a lot of it has to do with much more with collaboration and making relationships happen. And you can start to see this kind of change. You can start to see this focus. Um, you had companies like Orvis and, and other entities that kind of pledged, hey, we're going to show, you know, 
equal gender representation within our marketing campaigns. You have companies like Zebco that are, you know, have changed things. You have, you know, a lot of our outdoor retailers like REI and then some of those entities that are like, okay, we're going to really hone in on trying to show that there is a much bigger world out there than what has been shown in print or digital ads for the last forever, right? It's it is cool to see. It's kind of fun to be part of. That I was looking through a magazine that I don't normally read the other day, and I was like, "Oh my god, they look like me!" Oh, I could see myself there, right? Like, um, whereas traditionally it was like a guy, a really buff guy in this really good-looking jacket, and I was like, "I uh, doesn't speak to me at all because I, I I don't even understand. I can't even." put my head in that space so it's kind of fun to see this this kind of thing growing and and to be a little speck in in the bigger the bigger world yeah i, I completely agree with you i uh, i remember how impactful it was there were two pivotal moments around my fly fishing journey talk, taking a little left hand turn here but two pivotal moments in my fly fishing journey that really made a huge difference and the first one was talking to somebody who said I don't have super fancy waders. I actually go fly fishing in my board shorts and my flip flops. And I was like, yes, I can do that. I can do that. I can financially afford it. I can feel, feel comfortable doing it. This is super accessible to me. And the second thing was seeing a picture of a mother with her baby on her back fly fishing. And as a mom who's still trying to balance my professional working environment, my role as a mom, my role as a spouse, and my role as an independent and individual woman, Sometimes it's really hard to understand how that fits together, especially without meaningful role models. And so seeing that picture totally created a pivot in my brain about what being a fly fisher woman could look like. And that I want to create that moment for all people. I want them to see themselves in these activities and understand that they belong and that these spaces are for them and these activities are for them. I have to share, I had a, a pretty similar situation, but it was, it was actually hunting and it was a, a friend of mine who 20 years ago had, a, it was a picture that I saw of her and she had, you know, like a Kelty, you know, backpack, but it was the child carrier pack. So maybe you do to her, you know, throw out whatever company, but she had this child carrier pack. And I was like, what are you, what, what are you doing in this photo? She's like, oh, we were we were scouting for turkeys. And I was like, what, what? You, you can do that, right? And I'm like, at this point, like 80 months pregnant, as we've talked about multiple times on this, on this <laughs> podcast, but I was like, they were quiet. And she's like, oh, he was asleep in the back. Like you walk for five minutes, he's out. And you know, then the turkeys come alive. I was like, this is mind blowing. So yeah. And granted that wasn't like a, a press, you know, quality photo by any means. It was just a personal photo, but it was, you know, something near and dear to her heart. And it, it really kind of lit that same fire. Like I could do that. That's awesome. And those moments are so pivotal. Absolutely. And from the perspective of somebody, um, you know, fairly new to hunting and someone who has not yet started a family and was honestly a little bit unsure about 
if I wanted to have children someday based on a lot of different things, but one of them being like, will I still be able to get out and do the things that I enjoy seeing specifically in the outdoor realm, the example that you Tanaya and you Rachel are setting, but also um, more imagery like this being represented in the media affirms to me that this is something that I want to do and that I can do if I do decide to have a family someday. Um, and I can pass that on to them as well. And that excites me so much, just knowing that that's a possibility. It makes me so much more excited about continuing to be a hunter and angler, so much more excited about, you know, potentially being a parent someday. So it, it really does fit all angles and it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Representation matters. And I think about being, you know, a young person of color and not seeing any representation whatsoever in any outdoor media or any outdoor activities or any role models or any of it. And thinking, well, if I don't see myself in it, then it must not be for me. And I, man, mm, if there are any bridges to build, that's certainly one that I feel passionate about. That's a great segue, Tanaya. You know, having been a part of this project and learned so much, I'm curious. What advice do you have for those working toward and trying to be champions for DE&I in their own systems and communities? You know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but what advice do you have for those folks on getting started? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, you've already heard me say it a couple of times, but I can't reiterate it enough. This is all about relationship building, right? So don't make assumptions. Don't prescribe solutions to a group you've never spoken to. But I think the most key important part is go make a friend and then ask them what they need and then amplify the crap out of it. Amplify, elevate, instigate. Like those are the things that we can be. You've got people in our field like us who are not afraid to shake things up, not afraid to challenge status quo and are really friendly and fun to be around. So take advantage of those skills. Go be a good friend to somebody and ask them how you can meet them where they are. And it can be anybody. And if you're identifying gaps in your organization and you're saying, man, we really don't have any meaningful relationships with the Hmong population or with people that are disabled or have disabilities, you know, go make friends. It's not hard. You know, we're all really great at that. But I feel like people sometimes view DE&I as this inaccessible, super challenging, hard thing. And it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be complex. So I I think for me, my biggest takeaway is literally just like practice everything you learned in first grade, be respectful, be kind, make friends, and then listen. Wow. We can almost just end the podcast right there. That was pretty powerful. (laughs) Yeah. And in our system, a lot of the times that shows up as, you know, our director of education and licensing who Tanaya, you and I got to chat with the other day, Jessica, she likes to say all the time, take space and make space. And I feel like for those of us who have loud voices and maybe get to be podcast hosts, <laughs> you know, we have a great opportunity to make some space for others in the work that we do every day. And that echoes so far. And you know, you don't have to have a podcast to do that. I'm just saying, if you are someone who is a leader in your community and has this space and this opportunity rather than prescribe things like Tanaya said, you have the opportunity to make space for others to step into that realm and tell their own story and give their own input. So I think that's really powerful and something I'm learning a lot about through this podcast journey, through working within the R3 and outdoor realm, and also being involved with uh, DE&I work. There's a lot to be said there. And sometimes the best thing I can do is to step back and stay silent and just learn. To bring it back to first grade, I... I have a almost two-year-old and we are reminded, well, I remind her often that she has two ears and one mouth. 
sometimes we need to make sure we turn our ears on and our mouth off. It's a hard lesson. I personally am still learning it much more than two years old. So, but to both of your points, I think um, it just reminded me of, of what I say almost daily. So, and, and to echo your, your sentiments, like we have to re- reiterate amplify the crap out of it, right? Like that is such a great phrase and, and kind of just catchphrase. So Tania, based on all that you've learned and still have left to do, if you will, like looking into the future, your magic crystal ball, what are the aspirations for the future of hunting and shooting sports? H- how do you, how do you see the world in your magic crystal ball? A really great question and you know there's a lot of different opinions about what the future could look like and there's all sorts of conjecture about whether the north american model of conservation will will be revised or whether funding models for states and conservation will shift and ultimately what i care a lot about is that we make decisions in a way that natural resources all natural resources and all outdoor recreation activities are not available to just an elite few but are managed in such a way and made accessible in such a way that all people feel equal access and opportunity regarding all outdoor recreation activities and resources. And we are not there yet. We have a long way to go. And that's going to mean like we've talked about today, amplifying voices that have been systemically excluded or historically underrepresented in these areas and these spaces. And it also means that we are going to have to challenge the way that we've viewed wildlife conservation for a long time and making sure that we feel comfortable engaging with new people in this space so that we make this all easily accessible to everyone. Well, we're all together. Let's shake it up. Let's challenge status quo. Let's, let's do this work together. All of us. And, and that, like, I love, absolutely love how many innovators there are in the world right now who are not afraid to build bridges to make relationships instead of being divisive. Um, and I see that in you and I see that in our community. And it just gives me so much hope and excitement about the work that we get to do together. So, you know, keep being a good partner and good friends and encourager and encouragers. <laughs> Go encourage. There you go. How about that? <laughs> go forth. To, to your point, I mean, we, we kind of live in a politically divisive world right now, right? We're all, all looking for those escapes for our mental health. We're all looking for opportunities to just decompress and relax. And, and that is what traditionally what the outdoors has been to most of us, right? That is our place of solace, our place of solitude, our place to get away. And, and all we want to do is make sure that anyone, you know, whether you're pink with purple polka dots or you walk on your head so that you can get out and enjoy that space with respect, with honesty, with integrity, with all of those things that we talk about in hunter education about ethics, but that you can get out and enjoy it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And Tanaya, I have to thank you personally and, of course, thank the Council to Advance Hunting and Shooting Sports and all the other organizations that have been a part of this project for the space you are taking and making headway on this issue and the space you are making in bringing in others, making this available to other state agencies, other partners, and, um, like you said, amplifying. I think that's the key word of today is amplifying this uh, this issue, this effort, this work. So, can't thank you enough for that. At the end of our conversations, we always like to ask our um, our guests that come on what parting thoughts they have for our listeners. So whether that's a resource to go check out, a challenge to our listeners, just parting um, ideas that you might have, what do you got for us today? 
go check out the National R3 Clearinghouse. There are tons of toolkits and resources available on there for anybody to use. They're open source. And um, MAFWA, the Midwest toolkit, is not the only one. NIAFWA did an incredible toolkit as well. And um, so if you have the opportunity, go check out the National R3 Clearinghouse at nationalr3community.org. Very good. Well, Tanaya, thank you again for joining us. This was a really important, robust conversation. We're so excited for this toolkit to come out and so excited for phase two, getting some of that evaluation in and just furthering this effort. So thanks for coming on. Uh, to our listeners, be sure to follow the She Goes Outdoors Facebook page as well for updates about our program and the adventures that the She Goes Outdoors team and our extended family goes on. There's a lot going on this spring. So flood our Facebook page with all your turkey hunts hunting pictures, morel mushroom hunting, gardening, whatever it is that you're doing to get outdoors. We're so excited. For those of you not aware, not on the Facebook page, our pollinator boxes are shipping out, I think like right now. So um, if you are expecting a pollinator box, know it is on your way. If it has not already reached you, super, super exciting. And we look forward to all of our pollinator box recipients joining us on our webinar. As always, remember to subscribe and get updates for all of our new episodes on the She Goes Outdoor podcast. Like us, rate us, and of course, share us with your friends and family. With that, thanks again, Tanaya, and we can't wait to see you outdoors. Outdoors.